And thanks. Thanks, Adam. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, you want to open it up to Genesis chapter 2. While you do that, um, if you're somewhere between 30 and 35 and up, I'm not, the tipping point is somewhere in there. Somewhere between 30 and 35 and older, uh, give me like the next two minutes. If you're younger than that, hold out and I'll talk to you in a second. Old people. Do you remember developing film? You would go to CVS or Walgreens or Walmart or whatever and you would, you know, you, you took a photo on a camera, not a phone, and it put it on film and you took the film in there and they, they gave you like the envelope back and it had all the pictures inside it and tucked into the back and the little thin like white filmish paper were the negatives so that when you were flipping through your photos, if you saw one and you're like, wow, I am a great photographer, I need more of that one. You could take the negative back to the place where you got your film developed and they could make more copies of certain photos. You know what I'm talking about? Young people. You know TikTok? Okay. I don't know TikTok. I watch Instagram reels like an adult. But on TikTok, one person will make a video and then it'll get moderate sort of popularity or success. And then like a thousand people will make copies of that video trying to do it better in their own way. And usually one, it's actually usually one of the copies that gets, ends up getting all of the likes and reshares and, and whatnot. But there's an original that people pull from in order to make their own. With the film, there's an original that you can make copies of. I want, I want to ask you to hold that image in your mind. Film negatives, TikTok originals, whichever one works for you. Because I want to ask the question this morning and then throughout as we look at our passage in Genesis chapter 2, what happens if you lose the original? So you lose the original negative of the film and you now you want a copy of the photo. You're sort of left to like your creative imagination and your artistic abilities to say I could recreate what was on the original to the best of my ability, or if you lose the original TikTok video and now maybe you're working off of a copy of a copy of a copy, or you have a foggy sense of what the original was and you're trying to create your own by yourself, what are you left with after a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy? Or what are you left with if you get rid of the film negative and try to create the, the original photo? I want you to hold that in your mind. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25 this morning, and ask what happens if we discard the original picture here, and then in any culture or any context, try to recreate a copy of that original. What are we left with? I want to read the whole of this passage, not just 18 to 25, so I'm actually going to start in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and we're just going to read through the end of the chapter in verse 25, so that we get the whole of this sort of in the run and in the context of the narrative. So if you've got Genesis 2 open there in front of you, this is the word of God beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. 
The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Delium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gahan, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the, or made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, the opportunity for us to gather as a church body, family, and to declare Christ be magnified. God, to pray that his praises would arise from this place, that in our lives and in our collective gathering, Jesus would be glorified. God, thank you for your word. God, that you've revealed to us who you are and why it is that you created this place, that you've told us something about who we are and why we exist here, God. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, present, active, moving here among us, you would take your word and press it into our hearts that we might see who you are and why you created and something of who we are and why we exist in this place. God, would you comfort and confront us with the truth of your word? Would you mold us into the image of Christ? Would you do all of that for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna give a, a couple of precursors before we jump into this. <clears throat> There are any number of postures in this room as it relates to the topics inside of this text, the, those topics being questions about gender, sexuality, and marriage. And when I say varying postures, I don't mean like how you're seated in your chair right now. I mean the perspective that you come to these topics with. So I suspect that over the course of the morning, there were any number of people who uh, from within sort of the life of the church, when we started a series in Genesis, you sort of circled Genesis 2, 18 to 25, and you said that one. I can't wait to hear what that guy has to say on that passage. I will be there that Sunday. And the reason that we do that is because we've turned these topics into a bit of a litmus test at times for what does a church believe, how does it articulate on these matters, and if 
the person who speaks on that Sunday gets up there and says everything as I would say it, then I can check off that I agree and can coexist in that place. And I will just tell you right from the beginning, I will not say this exactly like everyone else would if you stood up in this place. If, if that's the goal this morning, I will be the only person left here. Um, I will not check every box. I will not cross every T and dot every I for the way that you would want this articulated. But doing that according to your view or even my own is not my goal. My hope this morning is to take the word of God, do the very best we can to understand it as best as possible and then bring it forward into our cultural context and let it speak to our moment. My aim is not to take our cultural context and our specific moment, drag it to the text and get the text to say certain things in response to our cultural moment. The most important thing I do up here during this time on any given Sunday or whoever preaches is that we understand the text as it is before us and then allow it to speak to the moment that we live in in the cultural context that we live in. And that's going to be the goal this morning. Another posture that's potentially present over the course of this morning would be those outside of the church or maybe sort of around the church. Maybe you've got questions about Christianity and the gospel and what the Bible has to say and you've, you've been here and you've been checking us out and you circle a text like this and you say, it's that passage that I want to hear how they handle it because I want to understand the posture of this place towards certain people. I assume that if that is the posture and the viewpoint that you come in with this morning, there's a decent chance you'll disagree with where I land on certain things within this text. There's a decent chance you'll disagree not ultimately with me, but with what scripture has to say. I understand that. And uh, my hope for you on that side is that even in your disagreement, what you will hear this morning is the heart. A heart that I hope represents not just myself well, not just even this church well, but a heart that represents Christ well and his view and his thoughts on all of humanity. And my hope is that even if we disagree, you can receive the heart of that as we work through this. One other precursor, it's not possible to answer all of the questions that exist in our society and in our culture today on these topics. We shouldn't expect any one text within the Bible to be able to answer all of our society's questions on a topic. I don't want to overstretch this one to say more than it needs to say. We're going to keep this within its specific purpose and function. Um, there are also just some questions that are better handled, you know, one-to-one uh, -one in a face-to-face -face conversation. And if you end up with questions not answered in the sermon and you want to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I would love and welcome that. And so you're please reach out and we can have some extended conversation on this. Last, I'm asking you give me the whole sermon and not a soundbite within the sermon. I will probably say something over the course of this morning that, you, uh, that doesn't land great with you that you wish would have been articulated a little bit differently. I'm asking you to give the whole of the sermon the ability to provide context to that one statement rather than grabbing that one statement and trying to like sort of disregard the rest of it. So give me the whole not a soundbite. Here's the goal. We're going to work through Genesis 2, 18 to 25 and try and see it as clearly as we can as it exists within sort of the Genesis 1 to 3 context. Then we're going to bring that forward and, and ask ourselves, if that's sort of the negative, the original, what happens when you either lose the original 
or you start making copies of copies of copies of the original, and what are the pitfalls of that? And then finally, how is it that in Jesus and his work on the cross, we get the full-bodied, beautiful picture that Genesis 2 holds up to us? That's the way we're going to work, work through this. And here's the landing point. The picture of Genesis 1 and 2 is humanity flourishing in relationship with God and one another for God's glory. Humanity flourishing in relationship with God and with one another for God's glory. Genesis 2 verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. There's a very distinct rhythm in Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be, and it was so. God saw, fill in the blank, and it was good. And you read through Genesis chapter 1, it's good, 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 very good indeed. Day seven then is set apart as holy as Sabbath's day of rest to the Lord. You get into Genesis chapter two and it ought to jump out to you in verse 18 that all of a sudden something is not good. In Hebrew, it was tov, 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 meod, tov, very good indeed. Now it is low tov, not good. What's going on there? Why is that the case? And maybe even bigger question that sort of jumps out to us. What is the timeline here? Because at the end of Genesis chapter one and day six, it seemed as though God created male and female at the exact same time. God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Then you get to Genesis chapter two. It seems like Adam exists for a while and is doing some stuff. Then it's not good. And God creates Eve. What's going on there? If you were here last week, or if you listened on the podcast or watched online, remember that Really important anytime we open scripture is to ask the right questions and therefore get the right answers. And Genesis 1 and 2 wants to answer questions about who and why. Who is God and why did he create? We want to ask questions intuitively about when and how. And so Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2 really don't make a big deal out of what was the timeline of all of this. They want you to understand who God is and why he created and something of who you are and why you exist in this place. Our brain wants to impose a timeline into the structure. And so the question at this point is, why is there more than one person in the place that God created? He creates Adam and Eve. Why both? What is it about that? What is it about humanity flourishing in relationship with God that requires the one another side of this? The answer is that God is eternally relational. The host of scripture tells us that God has eternally existed, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in the Trinity. He is eternally relational. Humanity is made in his image, which means we are relational. We are made to flourish in relationship with God and in relationship with one another. So kind of stop here and catch the whole run of things in Genesis 1 and 2. Nothing is said at that point by God about anything marriage, gender, sexuality related. It's just not good for Adam to be alone. It's a relational void that God fills when he creates, next sentence, a helper corresponding to him. The word for helper there is the word ezer, E-Z-E-R, It's used throughout the Old Testament. It's important for us to understand how it's used because it informs some of what's happening here. The best translation for the word ezer is an English word that none of us use in regular conversation. The word is succor, S-U-C-C-O-R. That's a crossword puzzle word and no other place. 
It means to aid. So the next time you're doing a crossword puzzle and you get that clue and it's six letters, go ahead and drop succor in there. To help or to aid. And throughout the Old Testament, when that word ezer is used, it's most common use is about God helping or aiding Israel. It is God who helps or aids Israel in their slavery in Egypt. It's God who helps or aids them in their delivery from Egypt, in their wandering through the desert, in their delivery into the promised land. God, helper. Right from the start, it's important to note loud and clear that this helper or this aid that God is making for Adam is of immense value and importance. That is the picture of who God is as Ezor to Israel. And that's the picture of who the helper is going to be to Adam. And what is this helper going to do? Like, what does Adam need help with? That's a good question. It's not good for him to be alone. I will make a helper. Help with what? We want to sort of take verse 18, rip it all the way to 24 or 25 and make it seem as though God looks down at Adam and and says, oh, Adam, I see you're like sexually frustrated and you need a counterpart in order to address your urges and your frustrations. So God institutes marriage. But what has he been assigned to do up to this point? What is Adam's role in the place that God has created? Well, if you read Genesis 1 and 2 straight through, you come up with like five things. Adam is to bear the image of God in the world that God has created for the glory of God. He's to rule, reign, subdue the created world that God has created. He's to be fruitful and multiply, which we'll get to here in a moment. Genesis 2, he's to watch over and work the garden, serve it and guard it if you were here last week. And number five, he's not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Those five things. God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for him to be alone in accomplishing those five things. Not just the fruitful and multiply part, but all five. In verses 19 and 20, fill in for us some of what Adam is doing in his ruling and reigning, watching and working capacity. He's naming all of the animals. In Genesis 1, God names things. He separates light from dark. The dark he called, or the light he called day. The dark he called night. God's naming, exercising rule and reign. Now here's Adam naming livestock, birds of the air, fish of the sea. They're brought before Adam and he gives them names and that's what they're called. And that's part of his ruling and reigning. And he needs help in fulfilling all of this. So you could step back at this point and observe that we bear God's image and fulfill our purpose in relationship with others. If we're going to bear the image of God, rule, reign, and subdue the created world, be fruitful and multiply, watch and work the garden or this place that God has created, if we're going to be obedient in covenant faithfulness, we're going to do that best and flourish in relationship with other people, not solo. And so God makes a helper corresponding to him. What's the helper like? Well, the helper is going to be corresponding to Adam. The text actually tells you that twice. Once in the very last phrase of verse 18, I will make a helper corresponding to him. And once in verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. Those are the only two places in the New Testament where that word is used. And the word is konegdo. It literally means in front of, opposite, counterpart. 
The whole phrase there at the end of verse 18, translated literally, would read something like, I will make for him an aid as is in front of him, which is like a tongue twister and odd in English. So your Bible translated, translates it, a helper corresponding to him, an aid as is in front of him. It's going to be his opposite, his counterpart, but like him, in front of him. And so the helper is going to be someone who shares in all that has been given to Adam, all that's been commanded of Adam, all that's required of Adam, all that is expected of Adam, neither superior to nor inferior to. The helper will bear God's image. The helper will aid in ruling and reigning and subduing. The helper will be subject to the covenant agreement that God makes with, made with Adam. The helper will be the means by which humanity is fruitful and multiplies. That's who the Ezer is. And then in verses 21 and 22, the Lord God creates the helper, Eve, from Adam. And all of the rhythmic parts of Genesis chapter 1 are very obvious. Every day functions the same way. God said, let there be, and it was so. There's an evaluation of it. It was good. The fill in the blank morning and evening, or evening and morning, the fill in the blank day. There's a very noticeable rhythm in Genesis chapter 2 as well. And if you just scan your way down, every time you see the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, he's doing something. The Lord God makes, forms, plants, causes to grow, takes, commands, causes to sleep, makes. He's doing everything. So the focus in Genesis chapter 2 is, is like intensely relational, and yet God is still the transcendent one who's in control of everything, and he's like the thing that's making everything happen in Genesis chapter 2. And so Eve is created while Adam does not a single thing. He's sleeping deeply, we're told. And she is made from the rib or the side of Adam. Adam's made from the dust, Eve is made from Adam, and every human being that comes into the world from that point forward will be made from Eve. In fact, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, you get the allusion to the fact that even the Savior, who will crush the head of the serpent, is going to be the seed of this woman. And Adam's response to her creation is incredible. Verse 23, the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He like bursts out in poetry, which takes a little bit for most men to do. This one is bone of my bone, like she's of me. It's the strength of my strength and she's flesh of my flesh, of me, but weakness of my weakness as well would be sort of the idiom at work there. And she will be called woman. And so what we have at this point, at the end of verse 23 are male and female, that's the verbiage from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Man and woman, that's the verbiage from Genesis chapter 2, placed into relationship with God and with each other in order to aid one another in ruling and reigning, watching and working, having the capacity to multiply, which we'll get to next, and obeying God's covenant. And then verse 24 is where we finally get to the marriage and the sexuality part. And the picture at that point ought to be pretty clear. Male and female, Genesis 1. Man and woman, Genesis 2. Leaving their parents, coming together in an infinite or an intimate marriage relationship that involves bonding together and becoming one flesh for life as they live out their responsibilities in the world for the glory of God. 
Genesis 2.24 is the exact verse that Jesus is going to use in his ministry in order to talk about marriage, Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10, it's the same verse that Paul is going to use in Ephesians chapter 5 to talk about marriage. Both of them reach back to the creation story and bring forward, this is what marriage is. One man, one woman, in a one flesh relationship for life for the purpose of aiding one another in fulfilling the purpose for which God has put humanity here for. And then we're told that both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Without the presence of sin, Adam and Eve know no shame before God and no shame before one another. They feel no shame before God because they haven't sinned yet. There's nothing to hide. So in their nakedness, God can just see them and know them fully and love them, and they have no reason to think that that wouldn't be the case before God. And before one another, the same is true. They've got nothing to hide from one another. They can know each other fully, love each other fully in relationship with each other. So if we step back at the end of Genesis chapter 2, you kind of you catch the whole run of Genesis 1 and 2 together. I hope that we could agree that there's more going on here in Genesis chapter 2 than God creating Eve because Adam needs a sexual counterpart. There's more happening than that. The picture is far more involved and far more beautiful than that. What we have is humanity aiding one another in corresponding genders that bear the image of God and fulfill humanity's purpose in the world. Marriage, sex are a facet of that, but not the whole of it. Marriage, sex become a place where we can fulfill part of that purpose, but not the whole of how we fulfill that purpose. You take the rest of scripture and marriage is is held out not as like a promise. Every single person will be married. We'll talk more about this. But held out as a gift. What's promised is community, flourishing relationship with God, flourishing relationship with others in the world that God created for his glory. That's the original, the negative, if you will. And it has the potential for this incredibly beautiful photo. But often what happens both outside the church and inside the church is that we either disregard the negative entirely, the original, or we lift it out of its context and it gets put in this vacuum, not held with anything else around it. And that leads to some struggles. Or we bring our cultural context into it and we try to lay it on top of the negative and develop a photo that's just all wonky and double exposed. And so I want to take each one of those, kind of four pitfalls of not allowing the original to be the original. We'll start with what happens when we disregard it entirely. What happens when you just say as our fixed starting point, I am wiping Genesis 1, 2, and 3 off the table completely? Well, at the very least, fixed truth from like a transcendent personal God becomes totally irrelevant. And at this point, who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong? Not just in the context of marriage and sexuality, but at all. And that's where so many conversations break down between those within the church and those outside the church. 
because we can't agree on a common starting place. And so within the church, we're saying, here's what Scripture says. And those outside the church are saying, I'm already telling you, I don't care what Scripture says. How do we have a conversation now? The answer is we don't, or at least we don't very well. We shout at each other in the comment section on social media and in articles. And that happens not only regarding gender and sexuality, but in 10,000 different ways. And so on this topic, when you get rid of the original or you get rid of the negative, in our culture, sexuality becomes a matter of identity rather than an aspect of embodied humanity. Genesis 2 and the rest of the biblical witness about gender and sexuality makes it clear that this is a facet of personhood not the foundation of it. Your body is not your identity. This thing that you inhabit is not what gives you worth or value, how it looks, what it can or cannot do. That's not where your identity or your value come from. Genesis 1 and 2 make it very clear. You have identity and value and inestimable worth because the transcendent God of the universe made you You bear his image and he wants to enter into relationship with you. And there is your value. There's your worth. There's all of your dignity. Your sexual urges are not your identity. Your reproductive parts are not your identity. Your sense of gender as defined by our modern language is not identity. Those are facets of embodied personhood. They matter, they're important, God's sovereign over them, but they're not what gives you worth or value or dignity. That comes from God and God alone. And it is one of the most unfathomable gifts of his grace. And it's reinforced by Jesus's death on the cross. When you lose the negative here and you decide, let's, let's take Genesis 1, 2, and 3 completely off the table. Now we need to figure out where we're putting identity. And that's where the conversation breaks down. Those within the church are trying to say, here's what the Bible has to say about gender and sexuality. And those outside the church are saying, I already know what it has to say. I'm asking a different question. If this is how our current cultural moment defines identity and you take that and you put it on top of what I'm trying to tell you is my identity, you've wiped out my personhood. Who am I? That is a very different conversation. And so while those of us in the church think, well, we're just having a conversation about what's right and wrong in terms of gender and sexuality, those outside the church are saying, we're having a conversation about who I am as a human. And it's like two foreign languages trying to communicate with each other. Sam Alberry, in his book, Is God Anti-Gay, says the following, Christians who want to explain Christian faith to LBGTQ plus friends need to know that what the Bible says about homosexuality is not the only thing they need to explain. And it probably isn't the first thing or even the main thing they need to focus on. It's not the first thing or the main thing that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 focuses on. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 focuses on who is God and why has he created this place and what does that mean for who you are and why you exist. Where's your value, your worth, your identity? That is a much longer conversation that's not going to be hashed out in the comment section of social media and it's not even probably gonna be hashed out over a single time together over breakfast or coffee or something. It's a long conversation of someone saying, I'm trying to ask about my identity 
And you saying, I have something to offer you for that too. And it's far better than whatever shifting thing our culture says you should fix your identity on, whether that be career or money or social class. It's better than any of that. Better than sexual identity or gender. It's found in God, who he creates humanity to be and why we exist. Then there's the pitfall of keeping the passage but removing it from its biblical context. That would be like you go, you pick up your 35 pictures or whatever the case might be there, and uh, you lose everything except for one negative. And you're looking at a picture of your lunch from a time you don't remember, and you can't figure out the context of that photo. Why did I take a picture of this? Why did I want that? There's pitfalls associated with that. And so the second would be this, that in the church, marriage often becomes the pinnacle of life rather than a facet of embodied life. This is the Christian corollary to the non-Christian ditch of turning matters of sexuality into matters of identity because when marriage is the main thing, as it can often be within the American church, then we've still tied our identity to our reproductive capacities, to sex. Oh, you can't have kids? Then we'll come up with verbiage that makes you feel okay about not having kids. Oh, you're single and you're never married? We'll come up with verbiage that makes you feel okay about being single and not married. And that verbiage typically sounds like this. Ah, Jesus wasn't married, so you must be fine. But what we're actually communicating is you're missing out because you're not fully participating in what it is to be human. You're not married. You don't have kids. But the picture in Genesis 1 and 2 is we're all in this together. That's the high school musical reference. There's more than one of us in this place because it takes more than one of us to beautifully bear the image of God in his world. It takes more than one of us to rule and reign and subdue and serve and guard this place. It takes more than one of us to figure out how to live obediently. And it takes corresponding genders or sexes to be fruitful and multiply, an act which is to take place only within the context of marriage. And getting this like out of context leads the church to just bad theology for marriage. And so followers of Jesus get into marriages for the wrong reasons. We think they're going to complete us. That's the wrong reason to get into a marriage. It also means that followers of Jesus get out of marriages for the wrong reason. I'm not happy anymore with this person and how it feels like they complete me. So I'll just leave and find someone else who will complete me in a better way. It leads us to understand and hold and think about and handle our marriage is the wrong way as individuals, as couples, and even as churches. Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Secular Creed, gives this incredibly helpful reminder. She says, marriage isn't the goal of human existence. It's not the mountaintop. It's not the destination. It is a signpost. Again, ground ourselves in Genesis chapter 2. Marriage is a signpost that is supposed to point us to the beauty of the perfect, unhindered union that exists between, Paul says in Ephesians, Christ and his church. Marriage is to teach us something about covenantal faithfulness. 
And if you are married, your everyday experience in your marriage ought to remind you of the fact that try though you may to be as faithful as possible to your covenant promises in that marriage, it will only ever be a dim shadow of how covenantly faithful Jesus will be to his people. He will not ever fail at any point of the agreement. Not only will he not not fail at that, he's also made your side work and fulfilled his side. So every day in your marriage ought to be a reminder that points you to the faithfulness of Jesus and what he's done on your behalf. That's the beauty of marriage. Within our culture, we've bought the lie that marriage is solely about warm and fuzzy feelings of romantic love. Within the church, we've bought the lie that marriage is somehow the pinnacle of faithfully following Jesus. And both of those diminish the true beauty of what marriage is supposed to be. A man and a woman coming together in order to aid one another in fulfilling the purpose for which God has put us on this earth. Not only do we get the marriage theology wrong, it also means we just, in the American church, we have really bad theology around singleness. Look, if you're single your whole life, you are not missing out. If you're single right now because you're just not yet married, you're not that age or you haven't found a person that you want to marry, you're not missing out. If you're single right now because your spouse has passed away or you've been through the painful uh, act of divorce, you're not something lesser because you're not married. Now, I know every person in the room would say, well, of course, Tim, that's obviously true. But think about the way we set up churches in America. Like, we're just really, really bad at holding out to single individuals that you are still, every way, you're still part of ruling and reigning and serving and guarding and bearing God's image in partnership with the help of your brothers and sisters. And so for the way that from this spot, my verbiage perpetuates that. I'm sorry. I use a lot of illustrations about marriage. That's alienating for people. I use a lot of illustrations about parenting. I don't even have kids. When I, when I use those, I'm just guessing. Like, eh, I think this is what it's like to be a parent. You could be single your entire life or you could become single after having been married. And you are still fully valuable, fully worthy of full dignity, and you are still fully bearing the image of God in the world that he created for the glory of God. And you are still fully a part of achieving the purpose for that, which is his glory to the ends of the earth. Pitfall number three, still within the same category of what happens when we just lift the negative like out of its context. And it's that male and female relationships suffer within the church and society. The entire point of Genesis 2 is that we are to be helpers to one another, corresponding to one another for a big, bold, beautiful task of bringing God's fame and glory into the world that he had created. And there are any number of cultural, societal, or even just strictly church-related talking points around this. But the context to the whole topic is key. The whole point is about bearing God's image and fulfilling our role in this world, and we need one another for that. Men, you need other men for that. Women, you need other women for that. Men, you need women for that. Women, you need men for that. And the only hope we have of developing the right picture out there in the world is that the church is developing the right pictures within its walls. 
What are these male-female relationships supposed to look like, whether that be within the context of marriage or whether that be as brothers and sisters in Christ? And so fall where you want on the complementarian, egalitarian debate. If you don't know what those words mean, they're just, it's a spectrum of what is the role uh, for men and women within the life of the church and within homes. Fall where you want on that. But don't get the starting point wrong, which is men and women partnering together alongside one another for the display of God's image in the world that God created for God's glory. Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher in their book, Jesus and Gender, say this, that being in Christ means that we define ourselves as brothers and sisters shaped by Christ, called to partnership in loving one another. We're called to recognize, welcome, and respect one another. We're to humble ourselves and pursue unity. We're to be utterly devoted to the flourishing of one another, all because we've been loved by Christ. And so just a brief note to men. Most often within the context of the church, these conversations about what are the roles that people can play within the life of the church uh, they, they sort of feel like they boil down to like a power struggle. Who, who gets to have the power typically from this particular spot on Sunday mornings? And they kind of ignore like the bigger picture of the regular functioning day-to-day of the church. By God's grace, and because he said that he would build his church, the functional reality in America is that the church has been built primarily on the backs of women who are willing to faithfully give of their time and their effort to the ongoing ministry of local churches. You could talk to any pastor who holds any sort of position on complementary complementarianism and egalitarianism, and they will tell you that probably close to like 80% of the actual work that happens within the life of their congregation happens because women are willing to give their time and their effort and their talent. And then men sit in rooms and have conversations about, well, how much can they do before we need to stop? And it's a conversation worth having. We should do our best to understand what Scripture has to say about all things, which includes men's and women's roles within the life of the church. I'm very happy to have that conversation with you if you want to come and ask me why it is that we have women with the word pastor in their job title. I'm happy to have that conversation but also understand that we're probably having that conversation in a context where like on Mother's Day, women say, hey, the whole family's going to church. And on Father's Day, dad says, can I stay home and watch golf? And so if the starting point is not how do we partner together as genders in the way that God has intended us to, how do we flourish in relationship with one another as husbands and wives or brothers and sisters in Christ for the display of God's image and his glory, we're starting in the wrong spot. On the conversation. Last, what happens when we bring our context into the text and we sort of try to drop it on top of there? And we end up with this distorted image. The last pitfall is this, that the beauty of the biblical picture becomes a weapon to use on the wounded rather than a salve for weary souls. Do you know what those outside the church or within the LBGTQ plus community call this and other passages that deal with these topics? They call them clobber passages. 
because they've been used over and over as weapons to beat down those who already feel weary and vulnerable rather than as a salve that paints this beautiful picture for their weary soul. And so I'll ask the same question that Sam Albury asks in his book, is God anti-gay? His answer is, well, he's no more anti-gay than he is anti-anger or anti-money or anti-sexuality in general. What God is, is he's anti-sin because it doesn't lead to your flourishing. So in your anger, don't sin. In your wealth, don't sin. In your sexuality, don't sin. The two places where this is most explicit in Jesus' ministry come in a conversation, one with a woman at a well, one with a woman who's caught in adultery. And at the end of both of those conversations, the message for those, those women caught in heterosexual sexual sin is the exact same. Go and sin no more. In your heterosexual sexuality, don't sin. In your same-sex attractedness, the message is the same. Don't sin. The problem is that the church has become known for being anti-gay. The church has become known for being anti-conversation about any of these gender or sexuality-related topics. The church has even become known for being anti-interaction with those who have questions about these topics of gender and sexuality. And instead of holding out the beauty of what the Bible has to offer, we swing away with our Bible passages that speak the truth but don't answer the bigger questions. Questions about identity and value and worth and purpose. And people outside the church feel that and they feel beat down, and people inside the church, brothers or sisters in Christ who have struggles in this area or who have family members and loved ones with struggles in this area feel beat down by it. Rather than holding out something beautiful and saying, there's something for your soul here. Because we do have something to offer in this conversation. And it's not just the Genesis 1-2 picture, but it's also the full-bodied, beautiful image that we have thanks to Jesus in the wake of Genesis chapter 3. We're made whole by Jesus. We are not made whole by any other thing. You're not made whole by the size of your bank account. You're not made whole by your career. You're not made whole by any of your friendship relationships. You're not made whole by your notoriety. You are not made whole by fulfilling your sexual desires. You're not made whole by being married. You are not made whole by, being, uh, by having children. You're made whole by Jesus. Sin warps and distorts not just our behaviors, not just our sense of what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, but it distorts our very sense of who we are. And in Jesus's death and resurrection, we're reminded of the value and the worth that God places upon humanity. How much value and worth? So much that his son would take on flesh and come to save those who are content to live in disobedience to him. That's how valuable you are. When we think about salvation, we often think about being saved from the eternal consequences of sin. But what we have in Jesus is also this powerful reminder of our value and worth and dignity. Our salvation restores our sense of who we are. It frees us from having to anchor our identity in anything outside of him. We're put back together spiritually and eternally, but we're also freed from our modern culture's lie that our identity is wrapped up in our sexuality. We're also freed from the modern church's lie that our identity is wrapped up in our marriage or in our family. Our identity is wrapped up entirely in Jesus. And by God's grace, through faith in him, you can have wholeness and a restored identity through him and through him alone. And we're being made whole by Jesus. Once we're made whole in the deepest sense, by God's grace, through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, then the power of the Holy Spirit continues to make us whole through the process of sanctification. And that includes every aspect of our lives, sexuality included. We're brought into union 
with Jesus. The naked and no shame reality of Adam and Eve before God finds its full picture when humanity is made right by Jesus and we're brought back into union with him. You get saved, now you're in Christ and he is in you. You get union with him. The thing that your marriage points to, a shameless, unhindered unity, finds its most complete picture in your relationship with Jesus. There is oneness between you and the triune God that completely gets restored by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Marriage is a dim picture of that. Relationship with Jesus is the fullness. And then he knows you fully and loves you fully. You get union with him. We're awakened to our purpose by Jesus both as individuals and as the church. What we have thanks to our wholeness and unity in Jesus is a reawakening for why it is that we're here. To bear God's image, to rule, reign, subdue, serve, guard his world for his glory that people might know him and be restored into relationship with him. And we do that in relationship with one another. Husbands with wives, married people with single people, Children with adults, students with empty nesters, widows and widowers. That's why when we come in here on Sunday mornings, we leave the lights up. We want you to see the other people that you worship with. So married couple, you look across the room at the single person every single Sunday and you're reminded that person has full worth and full value and they're not missing out and there they are worshiping the Lord and bearing his image. And it's good to get that reminder. It's good for childless people to get that reminder with families and for families to get that reminder with childless people. The partnership that exists in this space, the brother-sister relationships that exist within the church ought to be completely confounding to the world outside of here because this place is to be a place where the realities of the kingdom push back against the brokenness of the world for the sake of God's glory and the proclamation of the gospel. That's why you're here. And before union with Jesus, we make life about a thousand other things. Last, we are promised eternity with Jesus. Not with a spouse. Not with your kids. Eternity with Jesus. And in that eternal place, all the beautiful realities of the garden will be restored into picture-perfect, full-bodied, full-color, beautiful clarity. The perfect original will be brought back into untainted reality. Humanity flourishing in relationship with God and with one another in a place where sin no longer exists. That's what awaits us. And it's only found in Christ. Full value and identity only found in Christ. Wholeness only found in Christ. Perfect union only available with Jesus. Understanding of purpose available through Jesus. Eternity where relationships flourish with God and with one another without the presence of sin, only available through Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.